At the end of the day, we're all in this for our students and to help our students be successful. And so how do we do that? Communication is important. Mm -hmm. Collaboration is important. Um, advocating for our students, whether it's affordability or sharing resources that these partners can utilize um, and share with our students if they're in crisis. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're discussing the future of off-campus student housing. We'll just be discussing enrollment trends, shifting student needs, and partnerships to best serve students. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. Today's conversation was uh, a live webinar that we hosted with a number of uh, companies and entities that manage off-campus student housing. Uh, we did this live webinar, had these great guests and a wonderful conversation and wanted to repurpose and share it out with a much broader audience for Student Affairs Now. Uh, this episode was sponsored by Off-Campus Partners, a member of the Apartments.com network as a trusted partner to over 145 colleges and universities across North America, Off-Campus Partners is uniquely qualified to enhance the digital resources for your students living off-campus. Their sleek, modern, and university-branded websites are lightning fast, work perfectly on any device, and make it easy for millions of students to find their next apartment, roommate, and more. To learn more about their solution, partnership model, list of university partners, and partnership success stories, visit offcampuspartners.com. Uh, this was a great conversation, uh, a lot about the future of enrollment, who will be coming, where, geography, demographics, institution type, as well as the value of partnerships, communication, collaboration to best meet student needs and the changing student needs that we're facing now uh, and in the coming years. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm hosting this conversation today from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is the ancestral home of the Dakota and Ojibwe peoples. Uh, today, we're talking about off-campus student housing and what the future holds. We'll do a little prognosticating and future telling and have three really great guests. Um, so I'd love to get our guests in here to introduce themselves. If you could just share with us uh, your name, your role, pronouns, and a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Um, and Dr. Konvalinka, we're going to start off with you. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you. I'm Dr. April Kambalinka. I'm the Executive Director of Housing and Residence Life at UCF. I've been with the institution for three years, um, and my experience expands over uh, 25 years in housing and residence life, and I'm excited to be with you. I use the pronouns she, her, and hers. Our housing operation at UCF is a comprehensive program that includes 14 residential communities on our main campus, our UCF downtown campus, which opened up two years ago, and our Rosen campus, which is the Rosen College of Hospitality Management. We accommodate over 11,000 residents, which includes 72% of our residents are first-year students. Our residence halls are a mixture of UCF-owned, UCF-managed, and we have two of those properties, UCF Direct Support Organizations, which otherwise known as DSOs, and UCF-affiliated communities. We, our campus um, is extremely large. We have 1,415 acres of our main campus that contains about 800 acres of woodland, 
Uh, we're in Orlando. And so um, if you haven't visited our uh, website, come visit us or come join us on campus to see uh, the amazing work that we're doing here at UCF. Good to be with you. Thank you. I'm really glad you're here from UCF is the University of Central Florida for those who aren't familiar. Um, but you have such a great robust program there with both on campus and off campus public private partnerships really glad you're here to share some insight insights. Um, Blair, let's go to you. Yeah, um, hi everyone. It's so great to see um, all of you and be a part of such an important conversation. Um, my name is Blair Boozer. I serve as Assistant Director of Off-Campus Living in the Department of Student Life at the University of South Carolina um, here in the capital city of Columbia. Um, I've been with the university for about three years, graduated um, from U of SC many years ago. So it's truly an honor to be able to um, hopefully enrich the student experience um, back, back on um, my campus that provided me with so many wonderful memories. Um, but our office is a very small but mighty one. Um, it's just myself and my director, and we are committed to um, helping support the majority of our students here at the university. Um, on campus, like at many other universities, on-campus housing is incredibly limited, typically only reserved for that first year um, student population. And so um, our office is devoted to supporting about 75% of our students. Um, we have close to 30,000 um, living off campus and hopefully educating them on how to not only be um, fantastic Gamecock community members, but also um, members of the broader community. But again, thank y'all for having me and um, so great to be here. Thank you, Blair. I think uh, given where our panelists are coming from, we might get more than our fair share of y'alls in today. So thank you for being here. Uh, Dr. Fortune, tell us a little bit about you. Sure, uh, Dr. Andre Fortune, uh, I utilize he, him, his, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Vice President for Student Affairs and Enrollment Management at the University of West Georgia. I joined this team in April of 2020, I think the perfect time to join a new organization. <laughs> Uh, have the pleasure of being able to say I uh, shut down housing in a university uh, during the global pandemic and then opened up a totally different institution during the global pandemic mm -hmm. in 2020. Uh, I have served in uh, various roles throughout higher education administration and uh, four other institutions uh, growing up in the Midwest and eventually making my way southwest to now being uh, southeast enjoy uh, a lot of what I get to do in both the student affairs, student life, as well as enrollment management uh, roles and including uh, helping supervise housing residents life here. We have a little over 2000 beds here on campus, uh, very residential campus and uh, surrounded by many uh, properties that are adjacent to the university. And so uh, looking to increase those partnerships, we meet uh, with our partners quite frequently and talk about uh, this very subject. So I am looking forward to today's discussion. All right. Well, let's let's stick with you. Um, help us understand the future of enrollment at college and universities. What are the numbers telling us about enrollment in the coming years and decades? Uh, quite interesting that you asked that question. I remember uh, interviewing or being thinking about interviewing for a position that involved enrollment management a couple of years ago. And when I looked at uh, the projections, I said, there's no way I want to be doing that job uh, in five years. And here I am, uh, yeah. because in the next five years, there's certainly a predicted or a predicted cliff overall in terms of the number of high school graduates, which of course is going to be uh, for many of us, our traditional age college students who are first time 
uh, freshmen entering our campuses. And so uh, when you look at, you know, about five years from now, uh, if you're not on the West Coast or if you're not, you know, in some of the Southern states, it is not a pretty picture when, it, when you look at uh, the number of high school graduates that are predicted to come out of the Northeast, uh, particularly in the Midwest, you start to see some shrinking. And then you also start to see, um, as we have seen over the last five or 10 years, more and more students from historically underrepresented populations are starting to attend college, which has uh, a number of different factors that we have to think about as we think about student success and how do we provide uh, the support that those students are, are seeking so that they can be successful on our campuses. Um, one, one other thing I'll note is, you know, also for those of us that are in the South and whether you're in the South or in the West, it also doesn't mean that we just sit back and say, yeah, we're gonna be fine because I think uh, more and more of uh, my colleagues from the, the North and the Midwest are uh, looking at the same data that I'm looking at and identifying, we need to go to places like California, Texas, Florida, Georgia, uh, and the Carolinas because that's where the growth is and that's where the projected growth will be. Uh, we'll start to see some more increases uh, or at least expected increases in the decades to come. But then our favorite uh, you know, excuse of the last 12 months is we don't know what COVID-19, uh, what impact that is going to have on the future of enrollment. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's interesting. I'm hearing folks talk about, you know, next year we're going to have uh, two classes of first-year students on campus, right? We're going to have a first-year class and a second-year class that really, in many cases, are um, just showing up on campus. I'd love to hear a little bit more from you, Andre, about um, what we're going to see in different geographic regions and student demographics, and, and particularly institutional types, as you're talking about things being different uh, around some of those. Um, help us help us here learn a little bit more here. Certainly. So if, if any of you are familiar with uh, WICHE data, um, and I'm blanking on the acronym right now, but <clears throat> excuse me, over the next uh, 10, 20 years, you'll start to see uh, a decline in terms of the overall percentage of the, the number of students who identify as white uh, attending college or at least graduating from high school, uh, knowing that our historically uh, underrepresented populations typically do come from uh, first-generation, low-income, and student of color populations. And mm -hmm. of course, anyone can be any one of those combinations or more than one of those, uh, you know, that may be more than one of their identities. And so uh, that is certainly going to have some impact. Uh, as we've seen, uh, particularly with, again, the global pandemic and the impact that it has had on testing, uh, national testing, whether it's ACT or SAT, you've seen a number of especially public institutions move to test optional which has uh, certainly impacted uh, admission standards, which changes who goes where. Uh, and so I think you start to see the students who may typically go to some of your, uh, typically start at a two-year institution or some of our vocational schools are now choosing to go to state schools or some of the regional comprehensive, uh, comprehensive like where I'm at. And then also the students who are typically attending the regional comprehensives and state schools and perhaps community colleges are going to what we might say is another tier and going to some of those public flagships. Uh, and, and, you know, those are the, the students that may also be looking at some of our private institutions. I think some of our, our, our larger and, and really well-resourced uh, institutions probably won't have the same type of impact um, from an enrollment standpoint as some of our smaller or even less resourced institutions. If you look at the Chronicle of Higher Education or Inside Higher Ed anytime in the last, you know, three to 12 months, you'll see 
there are a number of institutions who are simply closing their doors uh, because their enrollment has declined uh, significantly. Uh, I don't remember the institution off the top of my head. I, I want to say, uh, I actually shouldn't speculate, but I know there's a uh, school recently that just announced they're going to sell, uh, they're, they're putting land up for sale as part of their institution as a way to stay open, as a way to generate additional revenue. Right. Yeah, we don't want to close someone down by accident on this show today, so I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, some some really big shifts and trends, and it'll be interesting to see, as you mentioned, what COVID does. And as we see fewer and fewer graduating high school, we see an increase in the non-traditional students. Will they want to live on campus versus off campus? We can speculate about that. Um, let's keep the focus on students, though, and Blair, come to you. You spend your time uh, serving the needs and understanding the needs of off-campus students at the University of South Carolina. Can you help us better understand the experiences that students living off-campus are having and how off-campus housing can do an even better job to meet those student needs? Absolutely. So um, this past year certainly, um, I think, highlighted those changing needs of our off-campus student population and really kind of um, pulled back the curtain of what they truly need um, and require to thrive off campus. Um, I think it also kind of highlighted, um, I think historically sometimes there's been a little bit of a divide between universities and off-campus housing partners, but we wouldn't have had as successful of a year without the collaboration with our off-campus housing um, partners. Um, there is such a strong um, continuing ongoing um, exchange of communication transparent conversations. Um, I know us as an office, we collaborate with about 22 um, apartment communities that truly cater to our students um, because they are viewed as, as an extension of the university. Um, and so some of the trends that we kind of noticed just by having um, some panel discussions with our property managers, what students were reporting as far as their um, university experience um, to us were definitely um, heightened anxiety, feelings of depression, feelings of isolation. Um, and we had a lot of property managers submit um, incident reports through our reporting system where we could start making those referrals and connecting those students to the appropriate counselors um, and the mental health services. Um, so I think there is definitely, for the first time in a very long time, um, we were really forced to have um, kind of an ongoing relationship um, and we're definitely hopeful that that's certainly going to continue, um, you know, in the future. Because um, at the end of the day, we do have that common goal of serving our students and supporting um, their success here at U of SC and in the community. Um, a couple of other trends that we noticed, which probably don't come as any surprise um, to y'all, um, definitely students not having too much of an issue of complying with, with guidelines on campus, wearing the face coverings, practicing that physical distancing, but they tended to kind of relax, um, I think, those practices whenever they got home in the, in the evenings. And so um, we try to have as many open discussions with our property managers and community directors on like, this is how we enforce things on campus. And our job um, as an office is to really educate our students and helping them um, take those practices on campus back to their homes um, and just taking some, some accountability and responsibility as well. Um, 
And I think without the collaboration, without the communication that we um, did have the opportunity to experience this past year, I think we would have seen and witnessed a lot more of that high-risk behavior of the large gatherings, of, um, of the pool parties, not complying with face coverings. And so I know it typically takes like 30 days for a habit to stick. So hopefully after an entire year of doing this, we'll see a little bit more, um, more compliance. But absolutely, it's been, you know, there's no playbook for, for this past year and students, they're naturally inclined, they want to gather, they want to connect. And so um, one thing that we kind of started doing is actually, as we like to say, meet students where they're at, and that's providing resources, it's kind of sometimes um, in conjunction with resident events. Um, having some mental health workshops, resume building, and just really making sure that population is still engaged and feels a part of the community. Um, I think sometimes universities, we spend so much time creating programming for our first year students that are upperclassmen, especially those off-campus students, sometimes get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. I really appreciate that, and I think um, you, your your first point about really uh, this this pandemic, this crisis, the, the and all the issues that have arisen with it over the past year, and not just COVID, but other significant issues in our time and our culture, sounds like it has really brought off-campus partners and the campus resources closer together, and those processes, um, and the relationship. Uh, and that's something that should stick around past this, past this year, right? That seems like something that we we needed to do, and so we did it. And how do we continue some of that so that mm -hmm. there are better partnerships, um, better ways of identifying student needs and connecting off campus, and then content, connecting them with on campus resources? Um, students don't really oftentimes see those differentiations the way that you know the budget or the structure or the title or the letterhead often does. So how do we how do we bring those more in alignment? I want to also ask, are there any promising practices or emerging practices that you really want to point us toward, particularly into the future beyond COVID, which I think is going to less end than sort of steadily fade uh, over a longer period of time than we once thought? Are there any promising or emerging practices that you would really want to point us toward? So I think um, just really continuing that communication, and we've even had some fantastic feedback from parents and family members who are oftentimes the most critical um, of their students' experience um, of having a messaging, like the messaging is transparent, it's accurate, it's up-to-date, and it's aligned with what the apartment communities are putting out. I think um, this year, family members truly felt like um, their child was having an exceptional living experience off campus just because they were pushing out the same communication that honestly felt like it was changing daily during um, the start of the pandemic. Um, and just really making sure that everybody um, is informed. Because I think with some of these students in our department communities, there was a lot of misinformation and rumors. Um, and students were, at the end of the day, they were confused. You know, you can wear your, your face covering outside um, of a business, but then maybe you can take it off inside. And then how does that look in our dining halls um, and in the residence halls as well? Um, but I think um, definitely just relying on us as much as possible um, for the resources. There are so many that I didn't even know that are available to our students. Um, and some of the things that we did that we had a lot of success with um, 
were providing like on-site COVID testing at some of these apartment communities. Um, it was at times kind of a nightmare to coordinate logistically, but I think that truly showed um, kind of our relationship. And um, it just at the end of the day, like we're here to support those students and make sure that they they stay healthy um, and their well-being is kind of at the forefront of everybody's um, minds. And so I think I would like to see some more of that collaboration, um, the resources, and again, just kind of meeting students um, where they're at as well. Right. Yeah, you're highlighting collaboration and communication again and again. One of the things you also mentioned was uh, often we see, this is an overgeneralization, first year students living on campus and sophomore returning students living off campus. And one of the things that I do a lot in working with campuses is think, how do we want to engage uh, second year students and first year students differently? And I think oftentimes the inclination is that those second year students are at a completely different place and have completely different needs until you start working with them. And then you realize, oh, they're a lot like a first year students in, the, in what they need and, and their comfort. And they figured out how to be in this building and go to this dining hall and go to those classes. Now that everything's kind of thrown up in the air again. So I would really recommend folks working with particularly second year and even third and fourth year students and beyond. Um, their needs might not be as different as first year students. And so how do we see what is working and replicate that in some other places? Great. Uh, April, you, you lead a really complex and robust on-campus and off-campus housing and some powerful and varied uh, public and partner, private partnerships, what you just alluded to a little bit in your introduction in Orlando there at the University of Central Florida. Um, what, as you work with so many different partnerships with so many different people and so many different arrangements and so many different structures, what are some suggestions you have for folks who are looking to really develop strong partners partnerships to best serve students, which is in the best interest of off-campus housing entities, as well as the campus community and student success and retention. Sure, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we do have a pretty complex housing program and surrounding our campus um, is a large off-campus, um, a large off-campus entity um, that serves about 2,100 students. And so when you think about that, that's pretty, that's a pretty significant. And so we have our own properties that we're responsible for, but we also have these off-campus properties that within a three-mile radius serve the needs of 2,100 residents. Um, and so when we think about off-campus and those relationships, it's important to, um, to have open communication, just like Blair said. Um, but I think for us, we don't work directly with our off-campus um, properties. We have an off-campus office that works directly with these properties to develop those relationships and share information and advocate for students who may experience issues in these off-campus properties. And so for us, when we are full, we will refer them to our off-campus office to work with the students. Last summer, what we did in regards to trying to come together um, because of the pandemic, we created a task force for housing in general. And so on-campus and off-campus properties came together to discuss the experiences uh, that students were, um, were involved in. We were, were talking about how we welcome them back to campus in a different environment. Uh, we identified innovative practices that we could share with one another as we consider the health and well-being of our um, students here at UCF. And so I would say that collaboration is extremely important, um, whether you have direct 
um, impact or contact with off-campus properties. Um, and, and part of that collaboration involves communication. Our partnership internally, so when I think about our managed properties, our DSO properties, and our affiliated communities, um, again, going back to communication and the value and importance of communication, that's where it begins. And so it's important for us to discuss the mission of the university um, with these partners and how these entities can support and be an extension of the university. Um, sharing with them what's happening on campus, what may students be experiencing within, um, within their housing um, that may impact their success is extremely important. And, um, and also how they can be involved in some of the events that are happening on campus. You know, sometimes this includes talking about leasing information, maintenance issues, capital improvement, security, technology. Um, those are important things to discuss when you're meeting with, um, with these entities. And in our case, our managed, our affiliated, and our DSO properties. I think it's also important to engage in conversations about affordable housing. As we know, um, we've all been experiencing a lot within this past year and affordable housing is crucial to a student success. If they're gonna to come to college, whether it be online or in person, affordable housing is important. And I, I think that as we advocate for our students, we also need to ensure that we're not continuously raising prices or these partners are not continuously raising prices and students can't afford to live on campus or to live within their properties. And so those discussions are extremely valuable. Um, and I, I think lastly, I think it's important for us as housing professionals with these partners, whether it's an off-campus partnership or whether it's a managed partnership is that we're advocating for the student. Our students are dealing with a lot. And there's the mental health cases are on a rise. Um, and so finding ways to bring awareness to, to them so they can have an understanding of where our students are, but also building the connection with our Dean of Students Office, with our care services office, um, counseling services. And so if they have a student that is in need or in crisis, that they know who to reach out to. It may not be us directly, and it may not be the off-campus office, but it could be them themselves reaching out to these partners on campus and trying to connect the student with the help that they need in order to be successful. At the end of the day, we're all in this for our students and to help our students be successful. And so how do we do that? Communication is important. Mm -hmm. Collaboration is important. Um, advocating for our students, whether it's affordability or sharing resources that these partners can utilize um, and share with our students if they're in crisis. Well, your, your summary, April, was so close to my summary. What I'm really picking <laughs> up here uh, is uh, the three words that I had is partnerships and, mm -hmm. and really talking about the closeness of the relationship. Partnerships, collaboration, and communication. That's what I'm hearing mm -hmm. again and again. And um, I think it, it's, um, and, and what Andre is bringing up is a, the flip side of that, which is competition. There's gonna be mm -hmm. so much more competition for students uh, competition uh, for different kinds of students, competition for students regionally, competition within institutions. We might have West Georgia fighting with uh, Georgia State and University of Georgia in a lot of competition. And then once they're um, enrolled in the institution, then how do we really create these partnerships? And I think so many times um, 
we don't have to start over and build these anew, right? And recreate the wheel. So the, the partnerships really allow us to connect students with resources and things that are already there. And you've pointed to affordability, other basic needs, food, um, mental health issues, which are just on the rise and being exacerbated by, by what's going on here. Um, I, thanks to each of you. I wanna open it up here a little bit to, to all three of you. I'm wondering, you know, obviously it's hard to see beyond COVID, but I, I think many of us in this future are looking not just in the, the summer or this fall, but what's gonna happen three or five years down the road. I'm wondering what you see coming um, with just uh, enrollment or trends or shifting students um, or different needs coming up. Um, uh, Andre, maybe we'll, we'll go to you first uh, since we haven't heard from you a little bit. Anything that you see coming up in, in the future beyond enrollment, do you see the students who are gonna be coming shifting? Sure, I think you, you hit on this point earlier about having essentially two different types of freshman classes. Uh, you know, as a parent, I'm watching, you know, my kids just went back to school in person for the first time, you know, in almost a year uh, because they've been doing virtual learning. And so what does that mean for their socialization and their own development? And, you know, those are the same students who are going to show up on our college campuses, whether it be next year or uh, a few years from now. Right. This and, is such a then, good point because what we're seeing yeah. now is everybody's reposting first day of school pics of their kids, right? They they yep. did it in September and now they're doing it again in March. And so we're having a similar experience where for folks who've been in college are going to have like what feels like their first day again. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, and and then think about for our off-campus partners, you know, the, the off-campus residences, to your point earlier about not making the assumption for any of us, whether you're on campus or off campus, that there's a, a large distinct distinction between a first year student and a second year student. Sometimes they have some of the same needs and sometimes developmentally they may be in the same place. And uh, one of the things that I think I do see in the future, and I'd love to see, and you, you again, you, you remarked on this in the last uh, segment as you talked about competition and partnership and collaboration. And I wanna look at our, our partnership and collaboration with our off-campus partners as just that and not necessarily competition amongst each other, uh, particularly in my role, because I hope we fill up our bids and your bids too. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. that means we're doing everything we want to do uh, from an enrollment and retention and uh, progression and graduation standpoint. And so um, one of the things I'd worked out or began working out at another institution, but didn't get to wrap up um, because I moved on to another position is working with off-campus partners to have their uh, facility managers participate in our training. Uh, with our resident assistants, with our resident directors, because it certainly, you know, all the things that, that April talked about earlier from, you know, and Blair mentioned this too, in terms of student support and needs, you know, those are very difficult to, to learn if you're also trying to do building management, you know, and you don't necessarily have the robust team that the on-campus uh, partners have, unless perhaps you do have a P3 affiliation, but otherwise, you know, you could have one or two or sometimes three people managing you know a complex of a couple hundred people mm -hmm. and that can be really overwhelming to address all of those different student needs so learning uh, how do we resource or share resources because at the end of the day they're still our students whether they're living on campus or off campus well i, I love this and, and i'm seeing other folks really resonating with this too about how do we bring the off-campus staff 
in and do some of the training where it makes sense, not everything, but there are some topics. So, you know, if we're doing the training for 150 on-campus staff, let's do it for 200, right? Like that's, that's no more work. But then also where are the trainings that our off-campus partners are doing that are exceptional or doing really well? And how do we, how do we have this swing both ways so that we're all learning with and from each other? Um, thank you for that. Um, Blair, what are you seeing on the horizon? I mean, you were working with off-campus students before COVID, and I'm sure you were seeing shifting change and needs. What are you seeing here in the three to five-year range um, about shifting needs and experiences of, of students? Yeah, I think um, whenever you and Andre mentioned, there's assumptions that we tend to student affair professionals um, mm-hmm. tend to make with that first-year experience versus the second-year experience. We just kind of assume, okay, like y'all had that first year experience, go out into the world and be a good neighbor. Um, And whenever my director and I, we go out and do property safety walks um, with with the property managers and really listening to their concerns, like what are we not preparing our students for in that real world um, scenario? Because I'm, one of my favorite stories to tell is I'm always surprised at the number of students who don't know that they need a shower curtain in their apartment and then water gets everywhere and then we have a big maintenance issue. And so we wanna make sure that we're doing everything in our power and kind of taking it back to adulting 101 and some life life facts, life skills um, so that our students are, you know, they're gonna be great residents um, and there's gonna be less, less turnover. One thing that we've noticed um, our students in particular here in Columbia there was kind of a trend of we need to have the nicest amenities. And um, I think what we're seeing now is after they graduate, living in these very, you know, exceptionally nice places, it leads to some housing insecurities Mm -hmm. where they're like, oh, wait, maybe I'm not able to afford that. Um, And kind of peaked in college and now I'm living, you know, in a not nearly as great of a place. So those are kind of just some realities that we're trying to educate our students about, um, especially with it's more important, um, the relationship that you have with your property manager, with your leasing staff. One thing um, just through kind of our assessment and um, surveys that we do with our off-campus students, um, the thing that really makes or breaks their experience, I don't think it's, you know, the type of pool that a property has or the shuttle service. I think it's truly how hands-on the management is um, and in their communication with the students. That seems to be the number one thing that students are wanting. And I definitely think that's a little bit um, of a shift to kind of get less um, less of a focus on those materialistic things. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, just so we think we're not bashing students for not being, uh, not knowing how to adult and know their shower curtains. I'm reminded in uh, Barack Obama's book, he talks about, moving into his place as a U.S. senator in Washington and not having a shower curtain and spraying water all over his bathroom. is <laughs> So you can be a real grown-up and still mess this up. And I had a PhD before I realized that you're supposed to leave the ice cube trays behind when you move to a different place. I thought you took those with them. And then, so we're all learning, right? And some of these basic things, just nobody tells you. So uh, I think that can be really helpful. And I, I work with so many campuses who this notion of adulting, we don't really call it that, but practical competence, life skills, lots of these different things I think can be really, really valuable. Um, April, we've got some folks uh, who are uh, sharing some questions um, with our host here about um, fall plans. Um, What are you seeing at UCF and your peers? I'm sure you're tracking Mm -hmm. what lots of other folks are doing. 
um, let's just, just say with there, what, what's kind of the predictions for fall plans uh, sure, as for... you're seeing in, in the process, not just what are people going to do, but what are the process and timelines? So currently we um, will be um, in full mode. And so um, we expect students to be back in the classroom. We expect to be at close to 100% occupancy um, with some isolation rooms on hold um, because we, we also understand that there, we will have some students that come who are not vaccinated. Vaccinations right now are not required. Um, we don't anticipate that that will be in our future, not this fall, but maybe a year from now. And so we'll have some rooms, a small number of rooms on hold uh, for isolation in the event that we have some students test positive and they choose not to go home and we keep them on campus. Um, but our plan is to be, uh, you know, full occupied. Um, campus is going to be resume, I would say, pre-COVID um, norm normality. Uh, students will still be expected to wear their mask and st students and staff will still be expected to wear their um, mask um, and social distancing. Um, some of those provisions will be relaxed a little bit as well. I'm still encouraging hand washing, hand sanitizer and things of that nature. Um, but right now, today, as we know, anything could change and we have to pivot. Right. Um, but we plan to be... Um, in our pre-COVID status in the fall. Mm -hmm. This really tracks with what I'm hearing from so many people, kind of this cautiously optimistic, crossing our fingers, yes. thinking we there, there's a lot of indicators that we can be back in person in the fall, not the way it was, but pretty close. Um, yes. But a lot of that depends on unknowns of vaccine availability and vaccine rates and, um, you know, uh, effectiveness, uh, new strains. Um, so there's this cautious optimism and people are really planning in the fall to be back in person on campus. Um, so I think a lot of what you're um, raising, uh, I'm hearing from others. Um, Andre, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about, um, are you and your colleagues talking about um, what kind of online, even if students can come back to campus, what kind of remote distance online options will be integrated in? I'm here in Minneapolis where we're bringing uh, students back to school, but every district is going to have an online, every high school is going to have an online option because as hard as this has been on so many for a lot of mental health issues and a lot of learning disabilities and other things, for some, this has been great. Uh, to not have the social pressure, to just focus on the learning and the academics and not have to worry about that with, again, mental health issues and learning uh, challenges. This has been better than ever. And so I think we're going to have a lot of both end. Is that what you're seeing and hearing as well? Certainly. And I think that is uh, both from an instruction standpoint, as well as a student life standpoint. So, you know, you, earlier it was mentioned about, you know, uh, kind of the outside of classroom experience from even just pool parties and apartments and things like that. I think the hybrid mode of delivery is here to stay. Um, I'm fortunate to be at an institution that was already a leader in online education delivery. And so shifting to online uh, for our institution, I think we had a lot of resources already in place for that to be successful. Uh, however, I do know that there are a number of students who, who really thrive in the on-campus uh, in-person experience and are certainly seeking that. And we're seeing um, our numbers even increase here um, this spring in comparison to the fall. Um, and we've had a number of students who say, you know, we can't wait to get back in the classroom. Uh, some of the provisions, and this is to me some of the positive things we've learned in the last 11, 12 months is 
what we can deliver online. So you mentioned like telehealth and telecounseling and even for our university recreation, being able to offer uh, you know, podcasts and on-demand YouTube type uh, classes and ways for people to engage in that space has been something uh, that our students have really enjoyed. And so with that, we've really started to ramp up how do we offer uh, online student engagement services? It's a, it's a mystery I think we've been trying to solve for several years, and I think we were just forced to solve it this last year. And so um, lots of positivity coming from that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm reminded of a previous episode of our podcast. We had folks talking about what do we want to restore to what was, what do we want to evolve, and what do we want to transform? And the, the big takeaway there was we, we all pivoted in mid-March a year ago didn't mean we did it well. <laughs> we just did it. And so we made this shift because we had to. And, but it is a great reminder that higher education is notorious for being slow to change. And we dispelled that. Like, we can change. Doesn't mean we did it well. And so I think it's a great chance to, to rethink. Um, and uh, so many of us are open to this. And, and many folks are thinking, you know, a lot of what we did online through orientation is better than putting people in a ballroom and having them there and they can watch it again three months later. This is great. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity and I think we're going to be moving, not going back to what was, but both and. How do we take the best of this mm. and the best uh, of what was and bringing that together? Um, Dr. Forster, we have a question here about uh, your short-term enrollment. What are you, are you anticipating uh, lower numbers this fall? You're anticipating higher numbers? It's sort of we have a bounce back. Uh, what are you projecting uh, on your campus and what are you kind of projecting across the U.S.? Yeah, ironically for us, uh, fall 20 was a bounce back for us. And so uh, for the prior two years, we had significantly declining uh, undergraduate enrollment and just overall enrollment, um, which was bolstered by certainly by graduate students and then also a lot of our online uh, education offerings. And so uh, a lot of our indicators right now are really promising that uh, will be close to relatively flat um, or slightly up. Um, but again, it's just really early to tell. I mean, if you look back at even our housing occupancy in July compared to what it was in August, I mean, I think we saw a 15 or 18% dip uh, in just that time because students were, and, and most likely, mostly uh, parents were, you know, contacting us and saying, you know, I'm really not sure we want to do the on-campus experience. And to your point earlier, I think we're going to have even more students who want to uh, get that experience because they missed it. It's not mm -hmm. the same as, you know, we, we talk about this with our Office of Admissions, particularly at the undergraduate level, that uh, when you talk about who do we lose to, um, our biggest uh, lose uh, competitor was no school. Uh, mm -hmm. the, you know, we have a number of students we admitted and accepted, and they didn't go anywhere. Um, and so that's an opportunity for us to bring them uh, on campus and whether that's housing them on campus and off campus uh, or any combination. So that's something that I'm, I'm really excited about. I think we will be able to grow our enrollment by uh, not only going after the traditional age student, but expanding to what now is a new group of non-traditional students who've stopped uh, their education temporarily, hopefully temporarily. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're pointing to a, another theme that we see coming up again and again in this and other conversations. It's the both and. Uh, I think some students have been online and think it's great. And why do I need to pay all that money to live on? Or I can live in the basement and this has worked just fine. And others realizing, oh, I miss it so much. Mm -hmm. Or even students who have been on campus, but miss the traditional campus experience. You know, I've been mm -hmm. living on campus or I've been living in my apartment. 
but I've been isolated. I can't leave. I've got to wear my mask all the time. I can't wait to go to a football game. I can't wait to have the, the barbecue in the courtyard. I can't mm -hmm. wait to do some of these things. So um, I think there'll be uh, both pushes and pulls. Blair, you're, you're working with uh, off-campus students all the time and talking to them and listening to them. What are you hearing from them about some of these things? What are you hearing in the, the push and pulls for them? Yeah, it's pretty much, um, I think, similar conversations and the report back that, that we've all been hearing. Um, for some people, it was a dream come true to really be able to focus on their academics and not have to worry um, about commuting. We had um, an all-time high um, population of students making that decision to stay at home the first year. Um, and so it kind of just taking that commute um, and just making their transition a little bit easier. Um, I think this year has shown us that we are able to do probably a lot, a lot more for our students, um, especially those non-traditional um, ones. And I think truly create and offer a truly like customizable experience mm -hmm. um, and offering just a much more inclusive environment on campus and all. Uh, well, we're, we're running out of time, uh, to quote Hamilton there, uh, and uh, we call this podcast Student Affairs Now, so we always like to end asking, what are you thinking about now? What's, what's sort of on your mind and on your focus now, maybe professionally or in the meetings you've been having lately, or maybe just as we conclude this conversation, what are you really thinking, pondering, questioning, troubling right now? Uh, April, let's start with you. What's, what's kind of going for you now? A loaded question, but there's a lot. <laughs> Uh -huh. um, so I would say right now in thinking about the fall, how do we, um, you know, there are preparations in place as we bring students back, but I think, I think more about our staff and how do we continue to support our staff, specifically all of us in housing and residence life. It's been a really tough year um, and it has impacted our team in many ways than one. So as we've also been handling a, a pandemic. We've also had, you know, a racial um, unrest. We've also had, you know, families that are dealing with things that are happening with within their household. Um, and so just how do we support our team? Um, how do I support my team? And how do I um, continue motivating them as we plan for the fall and um, continue doing the great work that we are, that we are, that we do right now? Um, and, um, and, and, and keep them in higher education. I think there's, we're seeing a trend that more folks are saying I'm done and, and moving on from student affairs or even higher education period. And so how do we continue to support them under these, um, terms that we're under right now with the pandemic and managing all that we are, um, that we're experiencing, whether it be at work or at home. Um, and, you know, as a parent of a nine-year-old who's work, who's learning remotely, it's been tough. I'll, I'll be honest. And so there's many of us as professionals who've experienced that. And, and, and as we continue going, how do we encourage our staff as well? Yeah. Well, and how do, how do we support the staff on campus and the staff off campus who have been through the ringer? Um, and also just the existential angst of everything going on on the news and on your social media and your doom scrolling in addition to mm -hmm. your work and your home life. Mm -hmm. So much going on and, and taking a toll on us. Uh, Blair, what about you? What's what's on you? What are you thinking, questioning, pondering right now? Um, I definitely think how to continue to convey the value 
of higher ed. There's so much more of an experience, um, especially for us in student life. Um, there's a lot that happens outside the classroom, whether that's a virtual classroom or a physical classroom, um, and truly some fantastic experiences and lessons um, to be had. So how to welcome back our students because, I mean, I can tell you they're, they're ready to be back um, in some sort of capacity. Um, so that's been kind of on my mind as well. And um, it's just great. I think one, there's been so many like good things to come out of this past year. Um, and definitely one of those for me is gratitude. And I can see it with our staff and faculty and I can certainly see it um, in our students. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Andre, we had a question here about, uh, I wanna know what you're thinking about now with double duty. Um, are you seeing the uh, timeline and enrollment process shifting and changing for this coming year? And then also what's on your mind now? The good thing is, is that that is actually what is on my mind now. Uh, as I saw that chat come in, I thought Perfectly. Uh, that that is perfect because, you know, I'll go back to again what last summer looked like and how, you know, positive things were from a from a uh, occupancy standpoint from housing to uh, where we ended up in, in August. It certainly was, was not where we predicted uh, in July. And my concern, or I guess the thing that doesn't quite keep me up at night, but it's certainly on my mind is, as we are all doing our various versions of discounting, uh, students are making commitments a lot easier and having less financial impact um, than they ever have before. A number of uh, institutions either have waived deposit fees or uh, canceled deposit fees or even incentivizing and you know giving students additional money uh, sometimes up front, you get some now and you get some later if you show up and actually uh, go through orientation and, and then arrive on campus. And so also seeing some of that from some of our off-campus partners. And so uh, I'm really looking at how does that affect the timing of, of our students? And then likewise for our, our um, and, and you know, April mentioned this earlier in terms of our own ability to, to manage our workforce, you know, for positions that are vacant right now, they are critical that we have those positions in place if we're going to have, you know, 13, 14,000 students on campus. But if not, then we need to make some other decisions. And so um, that, those all have certainly an impact on at least what, what is on my mind and what I'm thinking. So the short answer to the question is, yes, the timeline has changed. Uh, students that traditionally may have committed, you know, again, now, you know, whether it's a May 1st or a June 1st commitment, it doesn't mean as much until they show up. Because, you know, now what are they losing? Maybe $25, $50 or nothing on some campuses. Right. Yeah, and I, I just see that in so many places. Uh, just increased flexibility. Uh, students demanding it. Uh, life <laughs> to circumstances demanding it. Institutions offering it to be competitive with others. And so I think that greater flexibility, that nuance, the shifting timelines, being more flexible, uh, really, really important uh, for all of us. Thanks to each of you for being great guests today. Thanks for helping all of us better serve students living off campus. Listeners, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Student Affairs Now newsletter or browsing our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Thanks to our sponsors today, Off Campus Partners. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share on social, or leave a five-star review. It really helps conversations like this reach more folks and build a community so we can continue to make this free to you. Again, I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week.